Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Our major exhibition on view right now is World War II in New York City, which tells the dramatic story of New York's crucial role in World War II, and I hope you'll return to see it if you haven't already and take advantage of all the other exciting offerings here, including our inaugural Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, which is free with your admission during our pay-as-you-wish Friday nights. For those who like Casablanca, that's what we're screening tomorrow night with wonderful author Cotty Martin and New Yorker film critic David Denby, who will be having an introductory conversation before we screen the film at 7 p.m. So for tonight, tonight's program, Rogers and Rockwell, the original pop artists, is organized in conjunction with the, our current exhibition, John Rogers, American Stories, which you will hear a lot about tonight, and is on our second floor and will be open for you until 8.15 p.m. tonight. I encourage you to see it. I just went through with our curator, Kim Orcutt. It's beautiful. Um, stay for the book signing and then enjoy the exhibition. The program tonight is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's just give them a hand. <clears throat> also, I'd like to recognize in our audience our trustee, Morris Offit, and all our wonderful Chairman's Council members for all their hard work and all their support, too. Let's give all of them a hand, too. Thank you very much. The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics that we have in the aisles. And we ask that you do this so that the speakers on stage and everyone in the audience can hear you. And we're also being recorded tonight by C-SPAN. So we just want you to be heard by everyone. Following the program, just another reminder, we'll please join us for the book signing, which will be on the out the, those back doors on the Central Park West side of our <clears throat> ground floor. And the museum store where you can purchase the author's books is on uh, this side, on the 77th Street side. Kimberly Orcutt is curator of American art at the New York Historical Society and curator of John Rogers' American Stories and the author of the accompanying catalog. She's organized exhibitions on a variety of topics, including Colonial Portraits, George Bellows, and John Singleton Copley. And she has published and lectured extensively on 19th and 20th century American art. She's currently co-curating an exhibition celebrating the centenary of the 1913 Armory Show, which will be spectacular, and is scheduled to open here in October. We are also delighted to welcome Lori Norton Moffitt, the director and CEO of the Norman Rockwell Museum. She is a leading Rockwell scholar and the author of Norman Rockwell, a definitive catalog. Under her leadership, the Norman Rockwell Museum became the first to receive the National Humanities Medal, America's highest humanities honor. And if you're planning on going up for a little winter trip to the Berkshires, Visit the Norman Rockwell Museum, where on, I think it's, Lori could straighten this out, but it's the first Friday of every month, and this Friday, you will be able to join a gallery talk at 2.30, where they will have Rockwell models to meet and talk to. Our moderator this evening is Harold Holzer, the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and the Chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal conferred by the President of the United States. He is the author of many books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, most recently, Lincoln, How, American, How Abraham Lincoln Ended Slavery in America, which is the companion book to the film Lincoln, 
for which he also served as a content consultant, which we just screened the other night. It was wonderful with Harold and Tony Kushner. So welcome back, Harold. Before we begin, I just want to ask that if you have a cell phone or an electronic device that you turn it off so we have a nice, we can hear our, our speakers tonight perfectly. So come on up, welcome. Let's welcome our guests. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, what a wonderful opportunity we have, the Historical Society has given us to compare and contrast two remarkable artists, two people's artists, one might say, who were occasionally dismissed in their own time as illustrators, as mere illustrators, but whose depth and talent and true genius has been discovered and confirmed with the passage of time as documented and displayed as we've heard in the wonderful special exhibition that Kim has curated and for Rockwell on a permanent basis at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, one of my family's favorites um, and the, the site of our annual summer visit, which we love. Um, let's begin with, with, with Rogers, I guess, chronologically, and you see both of the artists at work on your screen. Um, Rogers was a quintessential 19th century man and Rockwell a 20th century man, both typical of their time, but each became enormously influential. They overlapped in life by only a decade. Actually, I'd never thought they'd overlapped at all until I looked it up. Rockwell was 10 when Rogers died. Of course, they never knew each other. But what did they choose to see about the America that they envisioned? Kim, let's start with you with, sure, with Rogers. Sure. Well, Rogers has uh, a very long career extending through the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. And he, I think of him as sort of riding the tides of American thought. He, um, he begins his career with Civil War subjects and really delving into the, uh, the civilian experience and the, and the military experience. He moves from there to themes of hearth and home. And, uh, and sort of dealing with a nation that is returning home and returning to life after the war. And then by the 80s, he is looking for a new way to engage with the public, and he turns to popular theater and celebrity culture. So he's constantly looking for new ways to tap into the middle-class American mind. Lori, what about Rockwell and his place and time? Of course, Rockwell was an illustrator, painted for the covers and inside stories of our journals and magazines of the day. Uh, he painted for nearly 65 years, covered almost four generations of American thought and family life especially, and his favorite subjects were people, everyday life, everyday moments, and what he'd like to describe was his real appreciation for the commonplace and seeing that which we might not have bothered or taken the time to notice. It's interesting that both accentuated what we call the commonplace, but both had social issues on their mind. And what we see in the next two pieces indicates that. Rogers on slavery, that's his first major piece of, called the slave auction. And, um, and of course, Rockwell's famous problem we all live with, school desegregation from the 60s. What, how do you see the slave auction as a seminal piece in, in Rockwell's portfolio? And then maybe I'll throw in something about the, well, I will throw in first that I think it was influenced by a New York Tribune article about a, a slave auction in Georgia that was so huge and so unashamedly grand in scope with so many people being offered for sale that the Tribune sent a reporter down to, to write about this horrific, like a state fair of slave auctions. And I think that might have influenced him, but we, I think we'd all love to know what is in this, what looks like a simple setting of three people, or four, right, really, as a child. Right, right. Well, and I think that's a wonderful um, 
place to begin because Rogers often keys his work off of current events. And he comes from a, a um, New England family of fervent abolitionists. And what you see here is what might have been a microcosm of that very auction. You have the, uh, the auctioneer in the middle. And you'll see that if you look carefully, there are two little curls in his hair that suggest devil's horns. And I encourage you to go upstairs and look at the actual sculpture, because if you go around, look at the back, you'll see a tail protruding right. from his jacket. So there is no question of the message Rogers is trying to send us about the evils of slavery. Um, and on his, um, to one side is the father of the family that's about to be divided by this auction, who is folding his arms in defiance. On the other side is the mother of the family um, with her two children clinging to her desperately. And uh, again, if you see this upstairs, you'll be able to look really closely and notice that she has uh, Caucasian features. And Rogers is making a very clear reference to the sexual abuse uh, by, um, by some masters of their female slaves. So Rogers is um, pulling no punches in the message that he's sending. And yet he had a very difficult time um, selling this in New York. He came from, uh, from New England expecting perhaps that, uh, that New York would be just as fervently abolitionist. What he found when he tried to place the sculpture was that uh, New York shopkeepers, store owners, did not want to place it in their stores because they were afraid of offending their southern customers. New York was very much a city divided during that period. So he, um, he cleverly hires uh, an African-American man to sell them in the streets, gets the attention of some abolitionist writers. And so this launches him, um, launches him in, um, in terms of critical acclaim. But it was uh, a, commercial, um, a commercial failure, I would say. So it, it, uh, get, it gets his career started. And here, we don't even see the faces of the, of the marshals leading this little girl to school. Lori, tell us about these four figures. And I'm also, with Rockwell, I'm always interested in the models, about whether we know the models. Right. Well, this picture illustrates the uh, integration of the first elementary school in New Orleans, uh, Ruby Bridges, 10 years after the board versus uh, Supreme Court ruling, Brown versus Board of Education. And many of the southern cities were not complying with the Supreme Court ruling, so the US Marshals were sent in to enforce the integration, and Ruby Bridges was chosen to be the first girl, her family uh, very brave and courageous to allow this to happen. And I think what Rockwell's telling us in this piece is that the individuals, the faces of the marshals are not important, but their power of the US government to um, make uh, help this progress move forward and protect the innocence and courage of this girl. But what's interesting is Rockwell came to these subjects very late in his career because he was constrained by editorial uh, point of view. And during all of his years, 47 years of working for the Saturday Evening Post, you'll never see a person of color in any role other than a subservient position. And when Rockwell moved to work for Look Magazine during the 1960s and 70s, and the civil rights movement was in full uh, full force, you see his subject matter change dramatically, and he's able to express his own point of view. So it's really opposite Rogers, who was able to start his career with this, this subject, and Rockwell really couldn't address it for nearly 50 years. And if we look at the next slides, you see that social injustice of one form or another animates their work, but that's an interesting and point. And I, I think it's interesting. Late to Rockwell it comes late to Rockwell, and in this one where you see the boy with, in the dining car and the porter, this is 1946, and I was in Kansas City this week and saw at the Nelson Atkins Museum a painting called The Lynch Family, which absolutely grabbed me, and I noticed it was painted in 1946 by the artist um, Peter Hirsch. And it represented a lynching that had just taken place. And it was the mother and her baby in utter anguish and anger. And I was thinking of Rockwell's piece of this same year, 1946. And it made me wonder if he was familiar with this artist's work. But he certainly was familiar with the news stories going on. And it gave me a little different insight into perhaps he was trying to address this subject within the confines of the Saturday Evening Post editorial point of view. And then you see. Um, the absolute raw honesty and brutality in the Murder in Mississippi painting, uh, which was the, 
painting, uh, trying to imagine what happened to the three freedom uh, riders who were registering African-American voters and disappeared one night after being let out of jail and uh, their bodies found 40 days later murdered and buried under a mountain of earth that had been moved over them. So this picture done for Look magazine uh, is just ter tremendously gripping and, and powerful in its menace. What was the, what formal training did, the, did each of these artists have? Let's start with, with Mr. Rogers. Sure, sure. He's, um, he's in large part self-taught, but um, well, the, what you see down there in the lower corner is a sculpture called The Fisher Girl, and it is actually a copy that he was commissioned to make of a sculpture by Randolph Barbie, and it sort of encapsulates the struggle he goes through as a young man. He, um, he actually, he actually is, a, is a gifted self-taught artist, but he takes a brief sojourn in Europe where he trains in Paris and Rome, but he only lasts for about eight months because he is being, um, he's being asked to, to make copies of antique sculpture and work in the, in the reigning neoclassical tradition. And he finds this very confining and maybe a bit disingenuous. This idea of copying, I think, is really um, unattractive to him. And he leaves after eight short months, where most, uh, most people spend three or four years training in Europe. He comes back and, and really struggles for two or three years about whether he's going to work in the neoclassical tradition or in a more naturalist tradition. And he, he brings into play his own training as a civil engineer as well. That becomes very important in um, developing the ways that he's able to produce his sculptures in mass. He sold over 80,000 of them during his career. So uh, in many ways, he's a very practical, self-trained, self-educated artist. Didn't have a college education. And uh, so he's a, he's a wonderful American story in that way. What about Rockwell? Well, Rockwell was a high school dropout. <laughs> and he uh, knew quite young that he wanted to be an artist. And he looked up to and admired the illustrators tremendously, having had stories read to him as a child and seeing their <coughs> images in the, the wonderful Scribner's books and magazines. So he went on to art school at the, in 10th grade and studied at the uh, right here in New York City. He was born in New York, uh, 103rd and Amsterdam Avenue. And he was trained at the Art Students League, the National Academy of Design School, and a brief stint at the Chase School, and had his first job by the age of 18. Uh, he was one of the last classes of artists to be classically trained where artists didn't uh, have to make a choice between are they going to go in, into illustration art or fine art. All artists were trained with that same training in anatomy, um, narrative, and uh, all the traditional art training of the great masters. So did they, did they end up, uh, we know that few artists of their respective centuries were ever as successful in terms of the volume. What did they say, about 100,000 plaster copies of? Yeah, about 80,000, yeah, a tremendous, tremendous. And 4,000 works by Rockwell. Right. 300 magazine covers. So did they, I, I was, I don't know the answer to this, but did they end up as wealthy men? Surely Rockwell was not. Let's start reverse crime. Sure. Rockwell was not a wealthy man. He was comfortably off. Uh, but as a magazine illustrator, his earnings were finite and limited. He was certainly the highest paid illustrator of his day. To give you an idea, when he sold his first magazine cover in 1916, he was paid $75 for it by the Saturday Evening Post. And at the end of his career with the Post in 1963, he was paid about $7,500 per cover. Uh, but he was a very generous man. He cared for many extended family members, put cousins through art school, cared for parents and grandparents, and uh, he was comfortably off, but never wealthy. And that just was, he was a working, working man, mm -hmm. an artist for hire. Yeah, Rogers is very much the same way, and, and purposefully so. He, um, his motto that he, that he reiterates again and again is large sales, small profits. He's very interested in creating affordable sculpture that is available to a middle class audience, and that's why he earns this name of the people sculptor. And so he's, he's making his work available for about 15 to $25, which is in the, in the grasp of most middle class families. And even though he sells these huge quantities of plasters over a long career, he, just like Rockwell, he's, he's comfortably off. He has a home in New York, a home in New Canaan. He, he has, um, I think, eight, seven or eight children 
who he, um, he sends his sons to private school, sends his sons to Yale. He has, um, he actually um, has a pretty, pretty good income during his lifetime. By the end of his life, um, he, he doesn't leave a large estate. And so I think in, in a way, he, he actually reached his goal of, um, you know, of making his work available at, a, at an affordable price. They, um, as we flip through a few a few slides here, I think we should talk about another similarity that I think exists, and that is how canny each of these artists was in the art of marketing. I mean, there's no better tool than to be on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post 300 times, or 300 times in magazine covers. And then what else did Rockwell do? And, and then tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. the cataloging that Rogers did right. and, the, and the marketing. Brilliant to have an African-American going through the streets on a pushcart selling the slave auction, but as, tell us about the progress, but how did Rockwell, was he conscious of, quote, marketing, what we call marketing today? Well, I don't think so during the years that he was painting for the Post, um, where he did, as you noted, over 300 covers, and for many other magazines as well, the magazines did the marketing. He was profiled in the Post magazine as early, as young as the age of 24, as their celebrity new uh, illustrator. And the Post knew that whenever a Rockwell cover appeared on its cover to print more magazines because there would be more sales on the news kiosks. And of course, the subscriptions were always eager to receive the Rockwells. I think an interesting thing as an illustrator is he never owned the copyrights to his work. Mm -hmm. Those rights were retained by the publishers. And so he had no way to make money off of his images one, after he was paid the initial time for his image. He did retain the artwork, but he was so generous, he gave most of it away all throughout his lifetime. And there really wasn't a value assigned to the paintings at that time. So now, if you own a Rockwell painting, it's worth a tremendous amount of money. But he never lived to see that appreciation of his original artwork. And Rogers is very different that way, of course. He has to very, oh, sure. He has to very consciously uh, market his work, and it's been a real problem for his legacy. Um, he was incredibly popular and a really brilliant marketer, something you don't normally see combined with the qualities of a fine artist. And the slave auction is a wonderful dry run for the kinds of strategies he uses throughout his career. He, um, he sends his sculptures to newspapers in various towns so that they can review them. He places them in bookstores and jewelry stores in smaller towns, art galleries in larger towns. He, um, and he's, uh, he's able to take advantage of the expanding railroads and advances in shipping so that he can ship them all over the country. So you see him advertising in local papers and national magazines that are um, like Harper's and Scribner's in the century. So he's really taking full advantage of the new technologies that are becoming available. And eventually, he even, um, he even distributes mail order catalogs that allow you to, uh, to write to him and s say what you want. He will ship it to you in a, packed in a crate uh, that is filled with sawdust. And amazingly, um, I, I were, were told from his records that only one in 500 ever arrived with any damage. So he's, um, he's very, he's very savvy when it comes to marketing. I wonder if they came with those paste-on labels you get from UPS to return, just they, in case. I know probably with, not. They came with directions about how to unpack them, that you were meant to turn them. Uh, they, they were packed upside down, so you would pull them out by the base, which is, of course, the safest way to handle a sculpture. And the, um, if I remember correctly, and they were the, heavy, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. incredibly. They, oh boy, they still are. We know yeah, it. Right. And, <laughs> and uh, the directions sort of alluded, if I remember correctly, to the idea that if if this breaks while you're unpacking it, you might not have followed the directions correctly. They're very confident. <laughs> Let the buyer beware. That's right. Um, as as we look at the next set of slides, let's talk about their process. Did they rely on? Did they make sketches? Did they rely on photographs? We all know about Rockwell's models, as we've heard. Some of them are still around, especially the children that he painted in the 60s. But how, how do you, do you know, Kim, about the, the process that Rockwell used for these astonishingly realistic faces? Sure. Um, I'm going to pop back from yeah. that. Because um, what you see here on the left are three slides that give you a sense, uh, just a, the tiniest hint of the immense complexity of creating sculpture. And uh, Rogers did work from models and often used his, um, his neighbors, family members, 
Later in her, his career, he uses actors who appear in his theatrical subjects. And uh, he, he is, is a very talented portraitist and goes through a very long process of creating a clay model. And from that, he casts a plaster. From that, the bronze master. And it's um, too complex to, uh, to uh, elaborate here. But um, he really has control over the entire process that involves um, you know, the, the plaster, which you see in the middle, the bronze, which is a tool that he uses um, to cast them from. And at the bottom, we were talking about these problems with copyright. Um, Rogers uh, had, had the same kinds of problems. He did copyright his sculptures, but it's very easy to create an unauthorized copy of a sculpture. And there were instances of just that happening. What you see at the bottom is a parian. A, a small sculpture that, uh, as far as we know, there is no record that it was ever authorized by Rogers, but these circulated widely. Copyists. Yeah? Yes. That's a flattery. What about term. Rockwell's process? Rockwell had an extensive process, and <clears throat> the images that you see um, on the screen are just a, a small selection of the number of studies he did for this picture, the art critic. And he typically worked uh, first starting out with a thumbnail sketch, which would fit in the palm of your hand, maybe about three inches square. And then he would work on a color study. But you can see him posing his model. Here, his wife, Mary, is posing as the woman in the, the art critic. And in this case, he went through dozens and dozens of variants and versions of trying to decide what kind of expression she should have and what made for the best kind of story. Uh, you'll see in the drawing for this that the background was initially a John Constable-type landscape, and it turns into the Franz Hall's Cavaliers so that the paintings are coming alive, uh, rather Harry Potter-ish, if you ask me now. Um, maybe, maybe J.K. Rowling knew Rockwell's animated works. Uh, so he really had fun with this picture, but his process was very laborious and painstakingly detailed to get just the right expressions, which he coached and directed. Uh, his models, chose them as, as he would an actor cast. And in fact, he's, I think, influenced filmmakers. Uh, we know George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are inspired by his work because and collect, his, and, and, collect, and collect Rockwell uh, because his sense of directing, casting, and telling a story is so illuminated by all the details in the painting. And he took his own photographs, or had a photographer? He had a photographer. He had um, what he thought of as his right-hand man in the studio um, over the years. Beginning in the 40s, prior to that, he worked by, from live models. But by late 1930, 39, and into 40, he had a photographer um, take pictures of the models, even though he still did the directing and the casting. And then he um, sometimes. Um, a model will claim to be the model in a final piece, but we know from our photographic archive that three or four children posed for the same subject, and maybe he used red hair and you know, a profile of another and clothes of another. So he would sometimes blend his models to be just the right expression and character that he wanted. On one of my visits to the old Rockwell Museum, before the beautiful new museum was built in Stockbridge, um, our family was confronted with a woman who said that she was a model for one of the paintings and was selling the postcards version, you know, in her, oh, she had her own stash of postcards that she was selling. <laughs> she signed and she, was, she signed them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who can say? She had pigtails, just like the girl, although she was about 70 years well, old. I think this was the museum in Vermont, where they have oh, models yeah. as their docents, right? Um, what was the, the evolution as we look at the next slides of the critical response? We're seeing Rogers one of Roger's works there, and of course Rockwell's. How did, how did the critics respond, political and artistic critics? Because we just saw the art critic. Let's talk about their, what they evoked. Right, right. Well, should I? Uh, I'll start, start with Roger's. Um, uh, what you see there is uh, the picket guard, and that's, uh, it, it's the first piece that has broad critical acclaim and really uh, launches Roger's uh, commercial success, let's say, his popular success. And he, uh, he really has a meteoric rise in the 1860s. He's, um, he is one of relatively few American artists who are working on Civil War themes, so that attracts attention to begin with. And he, um, he shows a, a real canniness and an ability from the start 
to deal sensitively with very um, tricky themes of racism. And, um, and here you see a group of three soldiers who are in the advance guard. They're in a very risky position. And you get the sense of the heroism and the, um, the intrepidness of the common soldier. So Rogers uh, gets great accolades. Uh, he's, a, he's very shortly elected a member of the National Academy of Design. You hear things like, he is a genius. He's ushering in a new era in sculpture with his, with his naturalistic themes that are taken from American life. And that just uh, rises and rises through the mid-1870s. I love this uh, picture of a, of a patron confronting art that is de decidedly non-Rockwellian. Yes, I, I think Norman Rockwell had so much fun painting this picture. And I, I chose it uh, to discuss criticism. It was done very late in his career. And I think he had the, uh, again, almost the opposite uh, issue of Rogers, because when he started out, uh, illustrators were highly admired. They were celebrities. They were the way we look at movie stars and sports figures today. And the illustrators uh, showed the fashions of the day, what to wear, um, James Montgomery Flagg, J.C. Leyendecker, uh, Rockwell, Coles Phillips. They were all painting to really show us how to live and how to be. But something very dramatic happened during Rockwell's years, and that was called abstract expressionism. And critics like Clement Greenberg, who uh, suddenly had to mediate and interpret this very abstracted modern art that the average person could no longer understand. And this created an immense divide in the art world and for the artists who painted uh, realistic subjects and narrative painting, and they went tremendously out of favor. They just plummeted. So Rockwell retained his popular appeal with the general public and mass audiences, and he uh, really received the scorn and disdain of the critical world, including at, at museums, galleries, curators, uh, museum directors. He wasn't collected for a very long time. Uh, much to the um, dismay of museums today who wish they had Rockwell in their collection and can no longer afford to buy his work. So I love this piece of the art critic because I think Rockwell is just really hitting the nail on the head and he's asking a lot of questions here. How will, my, how will I be remembered and seen in the face of modern art and uh, all the abstracted movements of the 20th century? But he's also maybe making a little pun here and saying, I can paint just like these guys, and I can do it even better, because I can paint both. <laughs> right. And he, in his studio, uh, laid out his canvas and sprinkled his art, all, his paint all around with his brushes and his stockinged feet and tried to imitate Jackson Pollock. So this is just a great favorite of mine. and, and uh, I So he didn't just it. paint it within the painting. He did It's it a painting within the painting. Wow. So the, the spatter paint, the Pollock-esque um, image on the wall was actually the entire canvas on the ground, and he cut out the piece he wanted, and then he painted the background and the gentleman and the museum wall and the tile in over it. So it's a painting over a painting. And then just to have a little fun, he took some of the other canvases that he had uh, splatter painted, and he mounted them, he framed them up and stretchered them and entered them into some con contemporary art shows in the Berkshires where he was living at the time. Anonymously? Anonymously. And uh, one was entered, but then the, then the gig was up and it came out that it was Rockwell. And the uh, Williams, esteemed Williams College professor, Lane Faison, um, who actually admired Rockwell's work, was a very early admirer in the face of all this criticism, told Rockwell he better stick with what he was good at because he was terrible as an abstract painter. <laughs> and I remember, I'm, I'm not going to get the year right, 12, 13, 14 years ago when a major New York museum did uh, uh, a long overdue Rockwell retrospective, and Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times wrote a glowing reappreciation of Norman Rockwell, right down to the way he, he coated his canvases the, before he started, and it was quite a and he got ripped by other critics for writing well, that review. that's true. That was the exhibition that uh, our museum co-organized with the High Museum of Art, and it was presented at the Guggenheim, the Guggenheim. Uh, just 12 years ago. It was uh, right after September 11th, actually, and, and the Guggenheim asked us to get it there sooner because they couldn't get their show from Brazil in due to the air, airports being shut down, and we hustled it from Stockbridge sooner to come here, and it was just tremendously well-received yeah. and such a, such a difficult time. 
we look at the next slide, I will quote a critic myself. Um, you see Lincoln here in um, uh, a great and very well-known Rogers group called Council of War. Uh, but Rogers very wisely, as many artists did, sent Lincoln a copy of um, Wounded Scout, which you see on your left, um, which I'll let Kim do the, the, the iconography of it. But let me read what Mr. Lincoln wrote to Mr. Rogers. Um, I shouldn't call him Mr. Rogers, should I? <laughs> this, is, this is Abraham Lincoln, who, wrote, who was one of the favorite subjects for artists and sculptors during his lifetime, posed much more often than one would think of a man who made such frequent fun of his own appearance, but appreciated what art and artists could do for him, and very rarely commented, however, because you know Victorian-era men, especially people who weren't secure about their own appearance, were not expected to say, why, you've caught me beautifully. So anyway, they're, they're rare, these letters. And this is what he writes. Uh, in June 1864, in the midst of the these awful battles in Virginia in which people were being wounded and helped out of swamp-like conditions, remarkably. The wilderness, for example. I cannot pretend to be a judge in such matters, always the caveat, but the statuette group wounded scout friend in the swamp, which you did me the honor to present, is very pretty and suggestive, and I should think an excellent, excellent as a piece of art. Extraordinary response. I mean, that may not sound like a rave, but from Lincoln, it's a rave. His, his most famous comment about art otherwise is, I am a very indifferent judge of such matters. What, what is the, you think it's partly the military aspect, the idea that someone was there to help soldiers? What do you think stimulated this? I think this is, um, I think he's, well, it's, it's high praise indeed from Lincoln, and I, I think it's very true. Um, suggestive in the sense that Rogers is, is again, ca cannily capturing a very interesting moment, um, and again, dealing with sensitive issues in a, in, a very, in a very inventive way. What you see here is a Union soldier who has been injured scouting behind enemy lines, and he is being, uh, he's being rescued, he's being helped uh, from the swamp by an escaped slave. And you can see um, the incredible detail. There's a tourniquet on the soldier's arm. The, the veins in his arm are bulging from the constriction. And what, Rod, what Rogers has done here so cleverly is he has made the escaped slave the hero. Uh, it's it's a, a reversal of the roles you'd normally see. Uh, the slave is in tattered clothing, but he is tall and muscular. He looks out with, with an alert, commanding gaze. And, uh, and it's, it's a real endorsement of, um, of Lincoln's, uh, Lincoln's policies. And it's all, it also comes at a moment when prisoner exchanges have been suspended. This is a few weeks after the escape from Libby prison. So this is very evocative for um, anyone at home who has a loved one at the front who is very worried that they may find themselves, uh, they may find themselves alone and in danger of being captured themselves. So it's, it's a, a reassuring kind of narrative as well. And Council of War, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. This is, um, this is from 1868. Uh, Rogers creates this group after the war, and I like to think of it as sort of a memorial in miniature, a memorial to Lincoln, of course, but you also see Grant on the left and Stanton on the right. Uh, and it commemorates one of their councils of war shortly after Grant has been given command of the Union armies. I hope I got that right, Harold. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so Rogers is working from, he, he visits uh, Stanton, he visits Grant to uh, try and catch the most accurate likeness of these men who are some of the best known faces in the country at the time. He works from photographs for Lincoln and he does a very masterful job of, um, of placing Lincoln, of putting him in a position that, uh, that makes him heroic. It's, it's as flattering and as, as good a likeness as, you're, as you might find at the time. Uh, Lincoln's son, Robert, calls it uh, the best likeness in sculpture mm -hmm. that he's seen. And he, um, you know, artists always had this problem with Lincoln's very lanky frame. And Rogers deals with this by, um, by seating him and having his, his legs protruding out a bit beyond, uh, beyond the base here. That's pretty, it's an astonishing little device, the boot coming out and the knees coming out. Yeah, sort of extending into our own space. 
the only thing he gets wrong, I, I think, well, there's a great description of the way Lincoln sat in a chair because his height was all in his legs. And the critic and the, the observer said, when he, uh, when he sat, he was the same size as ordinary men. But if you rolled a marble, if you put a marble at his knee, it would roll hipward because his knees were so much higher than the chairs of the day. He looks pretty relaxed here. Maybe he's slouching. But if we look at the next image, we could talk about Rockwell and presidents. He certainly portrayed his share of presidents. I mean, I still remember the, the Kennedy and Nixon portraits from, from the 1960 election. Yes. People were sort of looking forward to have what he would do with them. And I was 11, but I don't want you to think I was voting at the time, but I remember. I look forward. Well, he painted every US president um, from Eisenhower uh, until the um, primaries in California in 1968. And the, um, he loved painting Eisenhower's face. He talked about how uh, expressive and plastic and, and emotive it was. And you see him here uh, with President Eisenhower. Sometimes he went to the White House, too. Um, in the case of Lyndon Johnson, he um, photographed him, and he sketched him in the White House. And then he would go back to the studio and do the actual portrait. Uh, he didn't have the president sit live for him for very long, because they were busy men. Um, the, president, the portrait of President Kennedy was on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post when he first was elected. And the Post used it again as the obituary memorial portrait after his assassination. And uh, there is a letter in our archives from Jackie Kennedy thanking um, Norman Rockwell for this portrait. And that was um, the last post cover that, was ever, that Rockwell ever did. And then he went to work for Look Magazine. And certainly the country and the times had changed immensely after that. And he went to work on the civil rights movement and other current events social justice and the war on poverty and Johnson's initiatives, the flights to the moon, completely changed his subject matter for the Again, last the 14 reverse, years of the his. The reverse of Rogers, which is right. becoming yeah. more generic and less politically right. oriented. Right. I, want, I want you all to have an opportunity to ask questions. And we have two microphones here. We do need you if you have a question, and we hope you do. Um, I'll give you a few moments to come up to the mic. And while we do that, um, go to when the slides because I the, Rogers doing a heroic portrait of Lincoln and of course Rockwell who did some wonderful Lincolns tell us tell us about these two pieces Kim and, and then and then Laurie oh sure sure um, Lincoln um, Rogers admires Lincoln from the start he writes in 1861 that Lincoln is the right man for the time and of course we know about Lincoln from the Council of War. His interest extends to the end of his career and this is a, a full-size plaster, a life-size plaster that Rogers creates in 1893 and it's sort of a valedictory moment. It's one of his last major works and, uh, and, and he takes this to the World's Columbian ex Exposition where it wins a medal and, it's, uh, and it gains Rogers a great deal of, of praise and acclaim. It's, it's really a very good piece really very, I mean, in my Lincoln-oriented yeah, opinion, <laughs> so, is, so is the Rockwell. Boy, he, he has a way of doing the height, doesn't he? He really captured the height. <laughs> he, the he painted one uh, portrait of Lincoln that is, uh, the painting itself is over six feet tall, and it's now owned by the uh, Butler Art Institute in Youngstown, Ohio. But Rockwell um, greatly admired Lincoln. You see him paint cameo appearances of Lincoln into a number of the, the post covers that he did, and then a number of these freestanding Lincolns that are, again, heroic, um, filled with admiration, and just show the character in Abraham Lincoln so beautifully. My favorite, which sadly we don't have here today, is the law student. Someone leaning over a desk and being inspired by a yes. photograph mm -hmm. of Lincoln, which he paints impeccably. Well, before we go to questions, I just do want to do one thing which I should have done at the beginning. We have in our midst um, an artist who is very much the heir of the Rogers and Rockwell traditions. He's, in my view, the great portrait painter of our own time with more than 100 paintings in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington. And it's just such an honor to have him here today. And I wanted you all to meet Everett Raymond Kinsler, who's right here. So let's have the first question from this gentleman. 
Uh, I'm Peter House. Uh, there was a, an exhibit at the uh, Brooklyn Museum showing many of Rockwell's uh, works, and, and as part of it, they showed that he had traced from the photographs, that he, uh, he didn't look at the photographs and then draw them, but he actually traced from it. And according to the exhibit, he, uh, he did this because he was under pressure to, to do things quickly. Um, how, how widespread was this practice of, of tracing from the photographs? Well, this was, thanks for bringing that up. Um, this is an exhibition we organized to and traveled around the country to show Rockwell's working process. And after he posed his models and photographed them, he sketched them. And in his drawing, he would sketch and draw the, the models the way he wanted them to be. But then when he had his drawing all finished and perfected to tell the story narrative, he photographed the drawing. And then he projected that drawing with a, a camera called a balopticon, so it could project a positive image rather than a negative inversion. And that is the image he would trace onto the canvas so that he didn't have to go through the process of redrawing and rescaling and perhaps maybe not getting it as accurate as he wanted it to be. And that allowed his painting process to go much more quickly. So he, did, he used the camera as a tool to speed up the process, but he still was drawing the characters and the expression and painting his, um, the animation into his subjects uh, by hand. Thank you for that's a great question. Yes, sir. Jim Pesenich is my name. My question to both of you is, do you think that both of these artists were um, denied proper critical acclaim because they were popular? Uh, they sort of went over the critic's head and, and reached the mass of market without great critical appeal, and um, maybe there was a little jealousy on critics' part? Well, I'll start with Rogers. Um, he's, he's actually very highly critically acclaimed um, for about the first 15 years of his career, and like any artist with a long career, he, he starts to go out of fashion, even as he's becoming more skilled as an artist. And by the, by the time of his, his death, he's entirely out of fashion, and, and his, his um, reputation goes right down the tubes in the early 20th century, and it takes a few decades for him to come back into interest. And I think today it's still difficult for art historians to know quite what to do with him for the very reason that you mentioned, because he was so very popular in his time. And that's, um, it's, it's an interesting um, duality between being a successful popular artist and a successful fine artist. And I think that's very much the case for Rockwell. Uh, he did have critical acclaim early on when the illustrators were admired and respected as important artists uh, right up until the 1920s. But after the Armory Show here in New York in 1913 and the introduction of the modern art movements, artists very quickly veered into those to be au courant and to be bringing in the trends from Europe. And the illustrators who continued to paint narrative uh, storytelling pictures that we could all easily understand and see ourselves in and relate to and, and feel emotion with very quickly went out of vogue. The illustrators kept doing what they did because they loved it, and Rockwell loved his work and being an illustrator and a painter of, of people. Uh, but the critical disdain came in really by the 40s. Uh, right after the Four Freedoms were done in World War II, I think you see Rockwell continue on with his American family subjects, but by now Jackson Pollock is, is highly acclaimed and his school and the art critics now have to be an intermediary because the general public really couldn't understand what modern art was all about. And I think the division with Rockwell and the art world at that point was 180 degree uh, opposite. My, my vision is this is all going to weave back together, and we're going to have a greater understanding of American art and encompassing many genres. It will encompass sculpture, photography, illustration art, fine art, modern movements, um, performance art. We'll see it as a whole, and we'll see the continuation of the narrative traditions from Europe move on and influence American art. Um, but I believe in time it's going to all come back together and really be studied as one whole continuum of uh, American visual expression. 
I think you're right. I think that's absolutely um, coming back to us, this idea that we, the barriers between what was considered highbrow and lowbrow are, are coming down, and people are looking at, um, at the range of media in, in different ways than they were 10 or 20 years ago. So it's really an exciting time to be thinking about these artists. It is. If we, if we skip a few of these screens, we could see a, a parlor. That's a great picture, but a parlor setting with the, uh, these two. We see um, uh, that wonderful Rockwell self-portrait with other artists' works in the background, which he's imitated with such facility, and a, a, a genre painting with a with a Rogers group in it. So they're ever present, either making and, their own repetition or being or homages to them other works. Uh, and if you go back one slide, Kim found a Rockwell painting with a Rogers sculpture in ah. it. Which oh, was absolutely wonderful. Great fun. On the lower right, you'll see in the curio shop, in this April Fool's image, a Rogers uh, sculpture. Just and did she superimpose the Lincoln for me, or is that in there? <laughs> we did. Photoshopped, we did. or it's real? Yeah, the Mona Lisa has a halo. She's photoshopped. And the Lincoln we did put in just for Harold. Yeah, we, we, were, we were mesmerized by this, uh, by this cover, because you can look at it for, um, we, we stood there for 15 minutes looking at all the interesting April Fool um, April Fool tricks that he plays on you, and the Rogers group is one of the tricks. You see um, the, the little girl from a very popular group of his called Coming to the Parson, and combined with the soldier from a group called Wounded to the Rear, One More Shot. And what I love about this is that even in the 1940s, Rogers expects Americans to be so familiar with, yeah. excuse me, Rockwell expects Americans to be so familiar with Rogers that they will get the joke, they will find the trick. And we're, we're actually very, very lucky to have heard from a Rogers expert named Bruce Blyer, who's here tonight, thank you, and showed us a letter that Rockwell wrote to him in the 70s saying he was not a Rogers collector, but of course he was familiar to him. So um, I love knowing about this connection. This piece uh, and with the saying grace uh, generated the most fan mail in the entire time of Rockwell's painting to the Saturday Evening Post, people sent fan mail to him, care of the Post, and people tried to find all the mistakes in these mm -hmm. April Fool paintings. So they were a lot of fun. I think Lincoln is wearing uh, general stripes or something on his uh, shoulder. Yeah, well, Kim and I couldn't okay. decide what was wrong with Lincoln, so maybe I we twisted need around you to, to look. I must admit, <laughs> we're always admonished not to turn around you and look at the screen. But I had to see it in large size. So this quintessential civilian is wearing military. That's straps the or That's stars. The yeah. okay. <laughs> yes, sir. So thank you for your patience. I'm Jordan Woke. Kim, thank you for introducing me to John Rogers. And as a docent, I've introduced many people. Thank you. And all of them like it. I, I have to drag them out. Internationally, did either of these artists have anything that went outside the United States? Uh, well, as, as for Rogers, he, um, I think it's in the late 1860s, he travels to England and to France and tries to make some inroads there. And you, you do see Rogers groups now and then. And the Parian that I told you about, the unauthorized version of his work, it's very likely that that, um, that came from an English, uh, an English Parian manufacturer. But of course, nothing like um, his popularity in the US. Let's go a couple ahead so we can keep, keep sure. try to get as many Rockwell, images in. Um, yeah, this one. Yeah. Really, the main way his work was seen outside of the country was the Saturday Evening Posts were sent to military bases around the world um, during the war. And there were subscriptions overseas. But he was not widely known outside of the country. He did do the requisite uh, student tours and study to Europe to try to do the grand tour. But they were, tended to be short-lived vacation-type painting trips. And then he came home. Now, they're, now we're receiving a lot of requests for um, exhibition of his work outside of the country. I, I wanted this to be one of the last we saw, but I wanted to be sure to get it in because here are two, you know, sort of controversial political themes: the taking of oaths and 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 FDR's call for 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 freedoms and freedom from want and is still an important. And a controversial issue, how far you, you provide for Americans who are in want. And it's amazing how subtly and successfully they, they, they approach this subject with these wonderful pictures and sculptures. Yes, uh, sir. I am a great grandson of John Rogers. And uh, I wanted to both introduce myself and comment. My name is not Rogers, but it's John Rogers Horan, and I come through my mother, who 
was the only female descendant of the sculptor. Um, but I wanted to comment on the last years of his life as we heard it through my grandfather, who was one of his sons. Uh, he was said to have come down with what they then know as the palsy, and he had a shake. And that coincidentally was with somewhat of a decline in his popular work, but also with his own ambition to do greater works. And I think it's accurate to say that in the 90s, he did try and make several Absolutely. rather heroic works, including one of John Eliot preaching to the Indians. Mm -hmm. He translated the Bible into Algonquin, and Rogers thought that was intriguing. And also, I don't know when the Lincoln statue in Manchester was done. That may have been done before he was ill, but it's a very strong. 1890s, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's dated 93, but he must have been working on it well before. Yeah, I think it's yeah. one of his later works. and. The only other comment I would add, which is often in lectures like this, is that General Custer carried two Rogers groups in his tent. And they, as you know, they weighed a lot. And he always set up his tent and put, uh, I think one was called the Wounded Scout, and he yes. put that, and, and then made sure he was photographed with the Rogers groups. So there's lots of folklore about him, but I thought I would just offer those comments. That's a wonderful yeah, thank you addition. for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I remember reading a recollection from Custer's wife that uh, that his that those two two uh, groups that came with Custer, of course, were subject to some hard wear, and they were constantly having to fix them and reattach hands and things because they uh, they they moved around much more than Rogers groups normally do. Hmm. I'm so taken aback by our descendant. Both of these artists worked for a long time. And, and if you look at the next set of slides, you'll see that they also dealt with childhood, didn't they? They were sort of eternally interested in children. Um, was it because they both sort of had a, a sense of American innocence, maybe always one, one dis purposeful step behind trendiness? Or were they thinking about America's future? What do you think? Well, I think Rockwell uh, changed over the years. When he first started painting he and publishing, he was 18 years old. So his frame of reference was his childhood. And this is what he knew, what he could feel and experience and live. And when he tried to paint pretty women and sophisticated artwork, he felt, he felt that he just failed miserably. And his studio mate, Clyde Forsythe, said, stick with what you know and what you're good at, and this um, attention to children and, and subsequently um, generations of grandparents in particular was something he became very, very good at. Later, uh, while he could paint beautiful women and, and sophisticated people, it wasn't what he enjoyed because he felt there was too much artifice and too much um, you know, acting in, in those years. And he loved the naturalness of children and older people who were just themselves. And this is exactly what Rockwell loved to paint. And he just looked for the ordinary moments, which were really very heroic and meaningful. And so I think he stayed away from those middle years where you're on a pursuit of aspiration and uh, artifice that just didn't interest him. And I think Rogers is very much the same in that he is he's working from his own experience and his work is a little more autobiographical than you might initially expect. He, um, he turns to themes of children as, as his own children are starting to grow up. And the models in the top group playing doctor are his own children, uh, Johnny, Katie, and Charlie. And, they're, um, and below uh, the, the sculpture called We Boys, the models are two, of, two neighbor children. But uh, most of the time, he engages with children in concert with adults. You tend to see them. Um, in the presence of an adult, and, and often as part of some kind of rite of passage, which gives you the sense that he is drawing from his experience with his own children. There's one called The First Ride, with a mother uh, sort of helping her son up onto the horse to take it to have his first experience. You know, there's, a, it's, there's just such a wonderful symmetry about these two artists. I'm so glad we, we, we asked ourselves to look at them together. Tonight, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, um, Rogers born in New England and makes his reputation in New York City, and 
Rockwell, born on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and seems to have been left to us as the quintessential New England artist, um, both with a sense of morality and and um, a love of America and American traditions, and um, yet both much deeper than many people give them credit for being, and with enormous commercial savvy and a sense of themselves and in making themselves celebrity artists, which they both undoubtedly were. Um, I don't think any two artists were more beloved in their own time, and yet so deceptively, so deceptively simple, and yet so, so gifted. And if they have been critically undervalued, I agree with you that that's changing. And in no small part, due to your efforts, Kim, the show you've curated is really wonderful. I do hope you all, if you haven't seen it, go up and see it. If you've seen it, go see it again. It's beautifully installed, and the 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 Labeling is perceptive and informative, and it'll give you a sense of this man's mission and his skills if you look close up. It's nothing like looking at the originals. And of course, Rockwell lives at the wonderful museum that you've created in Stockbridge. Um, and um, it's, it's just an, it's staggering to go and see so many of his works together. Two American originals, two institutions that preserve them. And we thank you for everything you do and for this wonderful conversation tonight. So Harold Holzer, Kim Orcutt, and Lori Norton Moffat, thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming. I just want to remind you, stay for the book signing. And we also wanted to tell you that our new brochure is out if you haven't received it. It lists everything, the exhibitions, programs, movies, free concerts, so please pick it up. And we, we did, Harold and I wanted to also let you know, if you love Lincoln, we have two Lincoln screenings coming up and Harold will be interviewed by Ron Simon from the Paley Center on um, Young Mr. Lincoln with John Ford, um, with uh, Henry Fonda. And then um, Abe, Lincoln. Abe Lincoln in Illinois. So come back. Thank you all for coming. Good night. Thank you.